try to jerry-rig myself a mic stand. I don't think it's going to work. You think I have to hold it? Yeah, you're going to have to hold it. No, man. <laughs> no, you're right. You're totally right. This is like never in a million days going to actually This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Tan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. hold my mic okay whatever you should see what i tried to jerry rig right now i have a pot next to me that i was gonna put the mic i was gonna put the mic inside the handle which i think would have worked actually but like can you actually take a photo of that yeah i'll take a and photo i can put later. it i can put it in the bottom of the the post because now that we have like a you know an entry for everything i'll take a picture of my failed mic stand yeah. setup The thing is because like I tend to gesture with my arms so like the volume on this is going to be all over the place. All right. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. You have stuff to do. All right. This is a very special format. Special in the sense that it's condensed and I guess it could be shorter, but I have a pretty heavy topic today. It's one subject only. I also feel like because we both know that it's one subject only, we'll therefore just take up all of the time discussing it rather than sort of self-disciplining ourselves to keep it to 20 minutes-ish. All right. I don't know if you looked at notes, but I took a shitload of notes. I did look at the notes. I am impressed. Or you're just impressed with my copy and pasting skills. Um, I mean, you still had to read, but it's, yeah. it's hilarious because the fifth point in your notes is, frankly, as is often the case, some of the stuff is super boring and dry. <laughs> so is that yeah. even is that even a note it seems like you just got bored <laughs> well no that's a cue for me to let you know and to transition but anyways so the topic this week is of all the research i did i didn't I know, research I know how to say did. this word you properly you didn't research how to say elegy elegy that's what i thought it was so it, it's one of those complicated words that actually if you sound it out phonetically it's exactly as it looks Hipster Elegies, the death and life of the great American hipster offers an alternative history of culture over the last quarter century. So as the name of this piece may Wait, foreshadow... Can, sorry, can you also say, since this is such a big piece, can you also tell us the author and where it was published? Oh yeah, I was actually going to get into that. Oh, I'm sorry. It's like, uh, the, I'm sorry. Somehow you skipped the second and third line and went straight to the fifth line. Oh, Yeah. I mean, no, because I read the, okay, whatever. Charisse is like, oh God, now I'm referring to myself in the third person. All right, now we're rushing. Now we're rushing. No, I, okay, everyone take a deep breath. I am all over the place because I'm on the road. You're doing this podcast from your friend's living room. My laptop is on a suitcase. It's it's so hot in Europe. I have to close the window (laughs) in order to record this. (laughs) And there's no air conditioning. There's no air conditioning. All right, Eugene, go. All right. 
as the name of this piece may foreshadow, this is pretty long and complex. And the whole piece, um, I would I would say it's kind of broken up into two parts, two and a half parts. The beginning of it goes into the term and persona behind a hipster or the term hipster. And then eventually it comes back around and highlights actually what role the hipster plays within culture and defining culture. So this appeared in the Hedgehog Review, which is a publication on, and this is, as I quote, the critical reflections on contemporary culture. And it's part of the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. The author of this piece, Greg Jackson, is also the author of a book called Prodigals. Did I say that right? Yeah. Prodigals. And it's a collection of short stories. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, Tin House, The Los Angeles Times, The Los Angeles Review of Books, The Guardian, and several others. So in the very beginning of this, and this is kind of, as you alluded to in point five, it's it talks a lot about the emergence and the etymology of the word hipster. That's not what I said. I it did is not, kind of weird. You linked etymology nah, with right. boring. I did not say that. All right. All right. I linked it with boring. But I think there's some parts that I, I think are, are important just for people that are interested. So the word hip, and that's under the spelling of H-I-P, which I think most people are commonly uh, familiar with, and H-E-P mm-hmm. seem to be rooted in the early 20th century, sometime between 1902 and 1904. I thought that was interesting. One of its first use cases was a hep cat. A hip cat. I'm not sure actually how they pronounce it because hep is not a word or hip it's not a word they use under the, the context of H-E-P, but it was used to describe a person in the jazz scene. And then by the 1940s, Hepcat, I'm just going to go with that, was replaced by Hipcat and Hipster. Yeah. So before we go any further, Cherise, what is your definition of a hipster? Oh my goodness. What and I don't think there's a really right or wrong answer because this whole piece actually is trying to figure out what a hipster exactly is a hipster is someone and i'm doing this in in genuine sincerity okay so not like hipster as in a par- parody term that is slightly negative okay a hipster with sincerity i think is meant to mean an individual who enjoys slightly esoteric things and intentionally tries to stay out of the mainstream in terms of the things that they enjoy whether that's music or movies or food or fashion yeah i think generally that's that's pretty fair i mean i think most people given how prevalent the word hipster is are familiar with what it means right well wait a second let me take my yap back. The entire premise of the like first half of this article is that we don't really know what hipster means and that we have to or trace Or they're it trying back. to explain it. Sorry, what I was trying to say is that I think your definition is something most people would agree with. Okay. Maybe that's a better way of... Yeah. Oh, okay. okay, sure. Yeah. yeah. Here's a pretty clean definition. Author Anatoly Broyard's 1948 essay... A portrait of a hipster used the word to describe a black figure in Greenwich Village who possessed his own swagger and slang that resulted in the admiration of his in his disaffected white counterparts. What did they mean by disaffected? That was a quote. Disaffected. I always thought it meant apathetic, but now in that context, I'm not sure. Oh, then, this means dissatisfied. Oh, this, today's episode is basically English 101. 
Seem satisfied or dissatisfied? Dissatisfied. Disaffected means dissatisfied. How would they be admired if they're dissatisfied? Because they're dissatisfied with their own li- lifestyle. And their oh, own got situation. it. Got and it. Got it. this black figure in Greenwich Village who possesses his own swagger and slang is what they aspire to. Got it. Which I would say is accurate. So what they mean by disaffected there is they're not satisfied with their own swagger and their own sort of how they're put together, I would say. Mm-hmm. Broyard goes on to say that hipsters have this sense of a priorism, mm-hmm. which means they have this proprietary knowledge neither taught nor received to which they lay claim. In short, how they've wrapped the whole argument is it's about knowing the score. So it's about having awareness about all these things. And just the fact that the way I think in part how you've acquired that knowledge is part of what defines a hipster. I like what I like that second half of the what you just explained about a priorism because I think that makes sense is that the pejorative sense of using hipster is saying like oh how could they possibly just know what's cool but that's what it's suggesting is that they just innately have a sense for what is truly cool before it becomes mainstream I'm going to fast forward a little bit here but they okay. go on to talk a little bit more about Hipsters and how hippie culture, etc., also had some intersectional point. One thing that was kind of interesting was the birth of the hipsters connected to contemporary gentrification. Mm. So one of the arguments they made was like, when white people migrated to the suburbs for better lives, soon afterwards, the the children of these people that that sort of left um, the city uh, returned to otherwise low rent but attractively situated city neighborhoods. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And then other parts of this include the fascination with analog and old media. It's kind of what defines hipsters, Polaroids, vinyl, arcade games, early Nintendos, 8mm films, etc. Film photography. And one thing that actually I didn't really think closely about, but I guess is the case, is that despite the fact they have this knowledge, looking good is also paramount to like closing the loop. So if they didn't look cool... I guess in the eyes of some people, it would, I guess it would cease to be relevant. It would cease to have that same sort of impact on culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they didn't look just generalizing dorky or nerdy. So this is one quote that I thought actually summed it up quite nicely. Without the aesthetics, it ceases to be relevant. And its ethos glorified in the tacit recognition, the logic of silent appraisal. Mm-hmm. So by the mid-2000s, The term hipster shifted radically. Urban outfitters blew up. I think sometime in 2003, the stock price was about $2.20. But by September 2005, it was well over $37. So you can kind of see how the commercialization of the hipster culture basically led to its demise. I think today in 2019 terms, the hipster is all but dead. Here's another pretty long passage from, from the piece. Like pop, robbed of any meaning but the warm, fuzzy current of consensus, hipster lost any sense beyond gesturing at the broad territory of all that is currently hip. This tendency towards monoculture is the principal fact and force in contemporary culture. Where being hip once meant special access to exclusive knowledge, today's central clearinghouse, the internet, has permitted everyone sitting at home to know the score. And if you remember, know the score was something that was referenced earlier. 
It has meant that everything looks and feels more or less the same for arriving via the same medium, the portable screen. This didn't just entail a bland, flattening amalgamation of style, genre, and fashion. It killed the subculture, which always relied on the limitations of physical space, of geography, venue, and turf to enforce its exclusivity, purify its aesthetic, and guard its cachet. That was pretty much it. I think that this is something that I've spoken at length. I think the commercialization of a subculture is something that you see a lot, right? Especially Mm -hmm. subcultures that have the ability to be consumed by a product, consumer product. I think sneaker culture is something we're very familiar with, right? And I think that's something that, while I don't think it fits in the same sort of consumption habits of like a prototypical hipster sort of vibe, like analog stuff, et cetera, I don't think is as important. There is, I guess, retros and whatnot, but I think if you look at the way that it's come together, I think it's it's definitely valid. And this argument is sort of portable in that sense. Well, it's portable in the sense to think about how two great forces, capitalism and the internet, have shaped culture to vastly generalize where this argument is. So I, th- I don't think there's a lot to sort of add to that. I think that sums it up quite nicely. Um, and as we start getting down to the latter half of the piece, I think you kind of understand what role and what impact the hipster actually has in influencing culture. Mm. And here's another passage. In previous decades, writers like Thomas Frank worried about the counterculture's co-optation by market forces. But this threat of co-optation turned out paradoxically to be what gave subculture its vitality and established a meaningful target for its subversive energy. The subculture's obstinate and antisocial perversity kept the mainstream honest. We may end up missing our grumpy weirdos more than we realize. What feels at first comforting and even welcome about consensus and accessibility grows over time into loneliness and placenessness. Broyard's original hipster sought to dispel. I guess I guess I'll read that again. Obviously, this line is definitely not suited for audio consumption but no i mean this is a yeah. piece for reading which, which isn't a which isn't a negative comment at all yeah it's, it's yeah. written to be read what feels at first comforting and even welcome about consensus and accessibility grows over time into the loneliness and placelessness broyard's original hipster sought to dispel belonging everywhere starts to feel at some point like belonging nowhere but i feel like you totally skipped over this section of the article that I thought was important about why the hipster quote unquote died, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. What, what part were you going to reference that you thought was important? Because I think ultimately the change in culture where you couldn't be apolitical anymore. Okay, I, because, I looked at it more from. Well, I just thought it would be important because we do talk a lot on this particular podcast about climate crisis lately. And that's I feel like that's part of why the contemporary hipster has to look different too from like where the hipster used to be because there was this element of hipsters that were apolitical because it wasn't cool to be involved with things like to be inside of society commenting on it but then the political situation changed it so that you couldn't ignore that i mean i don't disagree with that but I think that the flattening of the internet meant that you could no longer 
safeguard your knowledge. And the knowledge is in some ways the the chasm that allows hipsters to be hipsters and the common person to try to fight for their way into that circle. Okay, first of all, two things. It's chasm. Second, okay. <laughs> second thing. I think I'm talking about two different things about the death of the hipster, though. The internet is one thing that contributes greatly because the internet allows everyone to be in the know. And then separately from that is how like things got to a degree in the world that were so disastrous that everyone had to pay attention. Like you couldn't afford to be a young person not paying attention to that anymore. So I guess, I mean, it's fine. You picked one thing that you thought was a bigger relevancy to our conversation, but I thought this was... I thought it maybe nice I mean you, you're talking about it anyways. Maybe you can elaborate a bit more on it. Sure. The early hipster from the 1990s, according to this article, was concerned about aesthetics mainly and the enjoyment of leisure things. And then in 2003, in North America, people became very concerned with the invasion of Iraq and 9/11. Understandably. And because of that, it kept people from being disaffected, using that word again, because this author really likes it, disaffected with their own personal lives because it was frivolous and irresponsible to just be concerned with the things of acquiring retro items and fashion and appearing to look cool. And suddenly it was cool to be politically involved, essentially. I don't know. I don't I don't know if I fully agree with that. But I guess this is where the challenge becomes because I think the hipster range can operate in different industries too, right? Like I think you you don't necessarily need to be this prototypical um textbook hipster mm. because I look at the hipster and to a degree the hype beast, like that sort of definition. I think there's overlap there, right? Mm. But I wouldn't necessarily say that the the hype beast necessarily has this political POV that it's trying to trying to state. Right. Well, I think what you're saying is is something that the author talks about, Greg Jackson talks about, because he's saying that the political social environment complicates our definition of a hipster. So previously to that moment in time, it was easier to say like a person's lifestyle would be all of these things. And they would tick all of these boxes. But now Mm -hmm. the identity is very multifaceted, right? So then you have hipsters who are into one thing but not another, who care about the world or don't. And so because of that fragmentation, like, does hipster even hold water anymore as a grouping? Does that make sense? That's something I picked up while reading this article because it is really long i think anyone else reading this as well will pick up on things that we don't mention it's always interesting though if you think about it because everyone resonates with different things right yeah like some things that I, it's happened more than once where i've omitted something that i felt was not important but from your perspective you think it is important yeah and the other way around so that yeah. that's pretty much all what this aside means you can continue with your previous trajectory so another thing they referenced in the piece was uh, the work of Pierre Bourdieu. Don't I look at me. Right. Don't look at me, man. Yeah. This is the, the Pierre Bourdieu. Today is a minefield of pronunciation. Yeah. 
a French philosopher and sociologist who did a study focused on aesthetic judgments and cultural consumption patterns of French subjects, cross-reference across metrics for class and education. So the premise of this was his team asked, what makes the most beautiful photograph? A landscape, a car crash, a little girl playing with a cat, a butcher's stall, a sunset over the sea, and so on. So they found that as education levels rose, a greater number of respondents leaned into mundane settings that could otherwise be deemed meaningless. So for example, a butcher's stall, I think, is the one that's a the, the odd man out within this sort of list of potential photographs, right? From his study, he concluded that the things you prefer tastes that you like to think of as personal, unique, justified only by sensibility, correspond tightly to defining measures of social class. So from this study, it was concluded that the things you prefer, tastes that you like to think of as personal, unique, justified only by sensibility, correspond tightly to defining measures of social class. And that quote is from Mark Greif in an essay called The Hipster in the Mirror, who looked at this study and drew that conclusion. As a total aside, he taught me. Did he? Yep, at the new school. Oh, really? Yep, back in 2010, I want to say. You can send him this podcast after. Would I do that? I don't know. I I don't know if he would remember me. He taught me a class on, actually, reviews. So the entire oh, class was about writing reviews of cultural items. Yeah. Sorry, we can also cut that whole thing out because I almost didn't yeah. tell you because I was like, it feels a little bit like flossing, but how can I not tell you while we're in this conversation? <laughs> All right. But when you dig deeper into the numbers, there's something interesting. When looking at a butcher's stall as a photographic reference, there was a big difference between the most and least educated opinion on its potential beauty. So like, you know, so 25% of the most educated said that a butcher stall could be beautiful, while only 5% of the least educated said so. Mm. But when you're in the middle for people seeing the photos interesting and ugly, the numbers were much closer. 18% versus 16.5% and 29.5% versus 31%. The, the big question they ask is, instead of thinking of taste as a product of self-sorting, Maybe it's a reason to self-sort. Okay. So I had Can we to kind break, of we break, break that down. down that question. How do you interpret it? Okay, I interpret this is it me. As... This is me deferring to you because I don't fully know okay, from okay, my own okay, perspective. Okay. Instead of thinking of taste as a product of self-sorting, maybe it's a reason to self-sort. So the first half of that says that we think of taste as a product of self-sorting. As in the taste we have comes from our individual placing ourselves into different buckets. So for example, in the Bordeaux study, our taste in photos is because we as individuals would like to define ourselves as being part of a group of people. Is that right? But then the question is saying, maybe actually looking to be a group of people is a good reason. I mean, I, I'm not going to get too much into your side. What I see it as is, does taste come first or second? I see. That's actually an easier way right? to break it down. Easier way to do it is it, do we have a perspective on how to sort stuff and taste comes from that? Or does having taste force us to sort stuff? I mean, first of all, the entire problem of this question 
is that taste is so subjective, but as a word, it's not. Because when we talk about having taste, we t usually talk about a small group of people having a good sense of selection. But I think that's kind of an outdated way of thinking. Taste should continue to be thought of as a product of self-sorting, though. Yeah. So, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't necessarily see any validity around it's a reason to self-sort. Well, no. Well, well the, the question is, like, is it a reason to self-sort is saying, like, oh, then you could align yourselves with having a specific kind of taste. But that seems inauthentic to me. You self-sort in order to discover your taste? No, that doesn't seem to make sense. Shouldn't taste be like an instinctive thing? Well, it can also be learned too through education, right? Well, that's the second half of your question. It's part yeah. C of this question. I guess the second half of the question is, is something learned performance or insincere? I think just like, this is the harder question. You know, last podcast, you basically asked me, how do we find happiness? And now this podcast, you're asking me, is something learned performance or insincere and i don't know at what point we switched from being a cultural news podcast to being like a philosophy one yeah you're right what do you think Anyways, i'm passing I'll, the ball I'm, to you because I, I don't have an answer the 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 paradox around authenticity is that authenticity can be looked at in different ways in the sense that if if i'm someone that always like has a consistency to how i do things but it feels fake that's still considered authentic i'm that influencer that runs from brand to brand and that's part of my dna and i'm just like the gun for hire and i have no brand affinity that's theoretically authentic to my personality right yeah i'm not really actually trying to be something i'm not because all i care is about the dollars and like getting a paycheck yeah. I think maybe the the broader question here is like, does authenticity even really matter? Like, I think authenticity, having this sense of uh, inconsistency, could also be authentic. Does that make sense? Like, I don't even know how you define authenticity anymore. I don't know. I, we right? actually talked like, about even this if like if I'm a just months ago, and I felt like I had more clarity then than now. I mean, I just I think maybe in the past, like authenticity was a very clear-cut way of looking at things, but I don't even know if authenticity really matters. Okay. Because if you are really good at just continually sh shape-shifting to fulfill a goal, then that's authentic to you because that's what you want to do. But even if you're, you know what I mean? I think this is like the thing that, to me, I, when I think more about it, I, 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 I think authenticity is the thing that we, we strive to achieve, but... I don't think we really know what it means because it means different things for a lot of people. And I think the best you can what do if, is have has to, consistency. Okay, what if it's not outward-facing consistency, but internal consistency? What if authenticity should be staying true to your internal compass of what you like and what you enjoy doing and think? I mean, it could be that, but at the same time, it's like you could also not want to settle for anything and always be changing, and that's authentic right. to you. No, I, I agree. It could be, but I'm saying it's just not something that it's not something that anyone external from yourself can critique. 
because they can't say, oh, that's not how you feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's fair. That's fair. So it's not possible for us to critique someone and say, oh, you learned to do that or you learned that that was cool. And so <laughs> it's insincere. You're just putting yeah. it on because we can't say, okay, in your heart, maybe you do genuinely love retro cassette players and you love collecting cassettes and you find them really special. And I, I can't say that you don't. I don't know that. Only you can tell for yourself whether the thing that you are doing is insincere or not. And I would suggest that you have some measure of your level of sincerity or insincerity to yourself. Have you ever been performative? Like, would you look back at Eugene and say, actually, in this point of my life, this was not real to what I wanted to do? Yeah, probably in like high school. You know, when you're trying to like seek out an identity and you're looking for validation, that's probably when you are most susceptible to yeah. it. So there's one last passage that kind of encapsulates everything. Do you want to read it, Sharice? Yeah, I'll go for it. Side note, I actually read it once and Sharice said that I should never, ever orate an audiobook. That's my personal opinion. Okay, go. Go for it. The great monocultural wash of pop consensus has not only devitalized subculture, but failed to grapple with the harm of feel-good acceptance when it tips into an ethic that refuses necessary distinction and meaningful judgment. A culture that insists on consensus stalls like a locked-up engine. Hipsters got grief for being a subculture without political conviction or heft, but even rigidly superficial movements matter because they de destabilize our convictions and remind us of the many possibilities of being. They open up space, dimensionality, in existence. The grand consensus of modern life online, the politics of a pro wow, that word is hard. I, I, I understand now. The politics of approbatory or condemnatory agreement keep culture from renewing and reinventing itself. When hipster lost its edge and went mainstream, we entered a period of aesthetic and moral stagnation. This wasn't hipster's fault and, dear God, hipster was never going to save us. It is simply what happens when we defang the subversive element in culture, even the stupidly subversive. For all the niceness in the air, you would be forgiven for feeling that we have grown meaner, less forgiving, and quicker to judge. In repressing our full psychological response, we have redirected its more virulent and antisocial aspects into channels that we have convinced ourselves, against all evidence, are healthy and good. The best thing about hipsters may have been the very thing we always condemned them for. They didn't like us. But were we really so likable? Was that better? That was way better. Thank you. I think that this really reminds me of an essay that we wrote. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Does it not? I'm not trying to be so no. congratulatory. It really does remind me of the modern creator's paradigm that you, me, Alec Rose, Nathan Can, Scott Massick all put together. Yeah, I think that it's it's valid. The one thing that is fascinating is that if the hipsters role or or the role they can play is in advancing culture does that advancement naturally always come to an end or or like that like the trend in the movement like right now i think that are are most trends and movements that come to an end defined by 
a consumption cycle. So hmm. what I mean by that is that if something can never really be consumed, you know, I'm, I'm looking through, like, as I, as I made that argument, I was kind of running through all the different examples, like fashion, like um, food or whatever. Do these naturally come to an end? Yeah, I think so. I think I think I think yes. I think trends because What about photography? Cuz that's like something that's not something that you kind of you I mean, there's trends in photography, right? Yeah, there're trends in photography. Like do those naturally come to an end as well? I mean, okay, you're talking you about consume. categories, right? Like fashion, photography, cuisine, like those are categories and those categories are not going to go away. We will keep taking photos and keep eating food, but it's within those categories there are different movements. And the word trend and movement indicate that there is a start and a finish. But you need those individual movements to push all of culture forwards. And it doesn't have to be hipsterism or hipsterdom. It could be something else. But there has to but be I a think, fringe element in order to push people forward. But I think the argument is that the hipster, by virtue of being idolized, being put on a pedestal, actually has a bit of power in this dynamic yeah i can see it but well i think one thing that sticks out to me is the phrase destabilize our convictions yeah i would agree that myself as well that i need to see people or actions that shake up my convictions in order to remind myself oh what is it that i actually believe in or think is authentic to myself if you never we, yeah. we talk about this like if you don't witness people or decision making that is strange to you then you never have to think about why is it that i choose the choices that i make it's like if we didn't do this podcast then i wouldn't have to think about what hipster means and whether mm. i agree with someone's definition of being a hipster or not and so like on a larger cultural level jackson's argument like his final argument, which I agree with, is that you need subcultures, in this case, particularly hipsters as a subculture, to challenge the mainstream's understanding of what they're doing. Yeah, that's something I can get beyond. Because I'm, I'm trying to think in broader terms, like, how do you leverage the hipster? I guess my question and is, could we do it without the hipster? I don't think so. Because... From my experience, I'm sure there's things I miss, I'm miss. i missing on too, right? Every trend, every movement that ends up being worthy of mainstream validation can't just start in the mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be battle-tested in a subculture to be given the opportunity to exist on a bigger platform. Because if you just threw a new idea or a new concept into the mainstream, I don't think there's an existing foundation and or support behind it to put it onto um like a broader distribution level that's a really bad like business way of putting it things need to actually be worthy of your time when no money's on the line so that someone can take it and then monetize in the mainstream we don't have time to get into this thoroughly but what you're describing we also have talked about on a previous episode where we discuss Toby Shoren's report on the diminishing marginal value of aesthetics. And that essay breaks down exactly that cycle that you were talking about. 
Mm -hmm. So listeners go back and listen to that episode. Whatever number. That yeah, is. we can we can include that in the notes. Is there anything from this piece and all like ten thousand words that you thought was particularly interesting or something that changed your perspective? I don't think anything in the piece necessarily changed my perspective, but that might be because I didn't closely hold a perspective on this prior to entering it. And a lot of it is informative in terms of tracing the origin of a hipster. I personally enjoy etymology, so I did like that. For me, I mean, if you don't have one that comes to mind, the one thing that I found interesting was the role that the hipster plays as part of the larger ecosystem of culture, right? Mm. It's almost like as though the hipster becomes a a vector for new ideas. If you don't have that person that's inherently passionate about random shit, nothing changes, right? It's almost as though it's like a stagnant body of water. That's like mainstream culture. And you need new ideas to kind of flow in. So you're looking at the injection of new ideas through these types of people. And I think that it's something that makes sense, but sometimes it's just nice to have it spelled out. I think what it does actually is reinforce some of my recent decisions, the, va the validity of what I'm doing. So I'm on this really bizarre sounding project right now. And this conversation actually kind of continues to affirm my decision to do my weird project because nothing about what I'm doing on this trip is the typical way that people travel. <laughs> and I'm not trying to say that in like a congratulatory way. Like I, in explaining this trip that I'm on, I keep having to like disclaimer, I know it's really strange, um, but I guess by me doing it, hopefully it encourages other people to travel in weird ways. A non-depressing subject. That's also kind of why I didn't pick a subject this week because everything that I was gravitating towards was so depressing, and I didn't feel up. I didn't <laughs> feel up for breaking it down. Should we cap things off? Yeah, let's do that so that I can go catch my train on time to Basel. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. -E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.